0: Well, when I was a kid growing up in Houston, Texas, I pretty much lived in the gym at Second Baptist Church. It was a home away from home. It was the first place that I ever played organized basketball as a wee little tot in elementary school. It was where I played my first organized games as a member of the Second Baptist Fighting Eagles in what we used to call junior high, but is now middle school. And I remember my friends and I playing through the night, playing basketball all through the night at lock-ins. Wednesday night was, was pickup basketball games. And it was just, it really, that gym was really a home away from home for me. As a matter of fact, when I was in college, one summer I worked in the Family Life Center there at Second Baptist, and they had just opened this incredible fitness facility, had two full-court basketball courts, side-by-side, state-of-the-art, unbelievable courts. And for those of you who don't know, there is a difference between courts. Some have a lot of spring. Some of them are dead. This, this court was springy. I, it was so springy, I could actually touch the net. It was, I mean, just that good a basketball court. Well, I, I knew that I was never going to play college basketball, much less pro. But that particular summer that I was working in the Family Life Center, that this was like the mid to late '80s. So this was in the age of Phi Slamma Slamajama at the University of Houston with Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and Michael Young and all those guys, and and also the Rockets then drafted Hakeem, and so this was right around that time, and. All of these professional and college players who were in Houston or from Houston usually played their pickup summer games at a place called the Fondy Rec Center. Fondy Rec Center had been a Houston institution for generations, but this particular summer, the Fondy Rec Center was under some long overdue renovations. And so all of these college and professional players came and played their summer pickup games at Second Baptist Church. And I remember walking into the gym just going, oh, my gosh, these guys that you've seen on TV. I remember, like, Clyde Drexler wasn't yet a Rocket, but he was home in Houston for the summer times. I remember watching Hakeem running the floor. And I have to tell you, in complete transparency, I knew I wasn't good enough to play with these guys. But there was part of me, I thought... Man, maybe if I just walked into the gym and the, if they needed a scrub, I mean a sub, then maybe, maybe I could get in the game. But the first time I walked in the gym, I saw these guys 6'5", six, 6'9", six, 7 feet. I mean, flying down the court, shaking and baking, dunking. It shattered all of my delusions of grandeur. I, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that... In every way, both literally and, and figuratively, and in every way imaginable, these guys were in a league of their own. You know, when, when you and I worship, when, when we bring it and intentionally acknowledge God's rightful place at the center of our lives and above all, That's a a confession of, of faith. That's a statement of fact that God is in a league all his own, that he is God, that we are not, and we're celebrating that. And so we bring our worship, we bring it and we lift up the name that is above every name, not only when we sing together on the weekends, but in every single part of our lives. This teaching series that we started last week called Bring It. Is, is really an exploration of that fact that every single part of your life, every part of my life, of every person created in the image of God by God is created for the singular act of worship. For all of our unique gifts and talents and callings, and they are unique and specific to each of us individually, for all of that uniqueness There is a commonality that is shared by every single one of us. We are created to worship. We're created to bring glory to God. And we established last week that the the foundational scripture for this series is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and put your thumb there, but also hold a place at Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to get there in just a second. Isaiah 6. But 1 Corinthians 10.31, you'll remember last week we said this is foundational. The Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, last week we focused on the do it all part of that passage of Scripture. But as I was preparing and praying for this whole series, I realized that that next little phrase there, the glory of God, is central to this idea of bringing our worship, that that we have to understand what the glory of God really and truly means. It's a, let's be honest, that's a great church phrase, isn't it? But how often have we really and truly asked or discussed or dived deep into the glory of God? What does it mean? Like for instance, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, written in the 1600s to help explain the Christian faith to to children or to brand new believers in the form of questions and answer. It it begins with that question, what is the chief end of man? What what is the purpose of humanity? Why are we here? And the answer there in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, of course, is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's, That's why we are here. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is not the Bible, but it is rooted in Scripture. The answers are found there in the Bible. And this idea of to glorify God, to to bring God glory, that's an interesting interesting thing. Let Let me give you a working definition. I would encourage you, everybody take out your program that you got when you came in. Everybody just take it out and hold it up just real quick. Take out your program, hold it up. You'll notice inside there's the connect card, but there's also message notes. I want to encourage you to take notes every week when we gather, but especially through this series as we're, we're diving into some things that we maybe have heard before, but I think a lot of us have not fully understood or, or, or appreciated or appropriated in our lives. When we talk about the glory of God, the glory of God is evidence. It's evidence of the beauty and the power of God's majesty. It's evidence of the beauty and the power of God's majesty. The, the fact that, that God is truly awesome. Now, as I shared with you, when you grew up in the 80s, like I did, the word awesome kind of kind of took on a new connotation, mostly Thanks to Jeff Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That, that was kind of where it all started culturally. People going, man, awesome! That's awesome. Man, this pizza is awesome. Well, that was what we that was just what we said. This is what we did. But I, I want us to, to go back beyond Spicoli. Go beyond the cultural norm. And, and to consider the awe, the, the wonder of who. God really, really is. You know, I remember when Julie and I started dating, I don't, we don't talk about this a whole lot just because it doesn't come up a lot in day-to-day living. And it's fun too because like right now, Julie doesn't know where I'm going with this illustration and she's very nervous on the front row. So that's, that's just fun for me. But it, I promise you, baby, it's a good place. When Julie and I started dating, I remember, I remember driving to her aunt and uncle's house where she was visiting in Houston in my 1979 Oldsmobile 98 and and pulling up in front of the house knowing I was about to see Julie. And, And I remember the butterflies, guys. Let's be honest. How many of y'all remember the butterflies? Men, just let me see a show of hands if you remember. Every dude in here who just raised his hand, smart move. (laughs) And and I got to tell you, we dated for two and a half, three years, two years, and then got married. We've been married for 27, coming up on 28 years. I still get them. Now, not all the time, not all the time, but, but there's still a lot of times where, where she's just walking across the room like, what is she doing here? It, it's this, it, and, and, and so it's, it's that idea exploded exponentially. It, it's that concept to consider that this God, the creator of the universe The king of kings and the Lord of lords has this incredible beauty. There's this this power that he has, this this majesty. And the Bible Bible is littered with examples of the majesty of God. But there's there's a scene that the Bible paints so perfectly in Isaiah chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Maybe it's on your phone. You have to scroll down a little bit. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, who who ministered in in Israel about 760 to 700 years before Christ walked on the earth. Isaiah is recording the vision that God gave him when God called him to ministry. And so Isaiah chapter 6 is his recollection of this vision, this divine vision that God gave him. And look at, look at how Isaiah wrote this down. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now attending him were mighty seraphim. Seraphim are, are angels ...that are pretty high up in the hierarchy of angels. Seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God, the evidence... Of the beauty and the power of God's majesty. Now, I I want you to to take just a second and and allow your your imaginations to run wild, led by the Holy Spirit. Here is Isaiah, a, a simple, simple man called into ministry, and God gives him this vision of heaven the seraphim, the angels. Hovering around the throne of God, calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy. The entire earth is filled with the glory of the Lord of Heaven's Armies. That's 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 you want to talk about awe. You want to talk about awesome, man. I I I remember. I, I remember being. In a, in a ceremony where, where the president of the United States came in. And, and I remember being in this ceremony and hearing Hail to the Chief. The, the band started to play. And the president walked in. And it doesn't even matter who the president was. It doesn't matter his party. There, there's something, if you are remotely sane, you kind of go, whoa, that's the president of the United States of America, now explode that exponentially, and this is isaiah 's moment where he sees the Lord in heaven and and Isaiah goes on to describe in Isaiah chapter six there that he was so overwhelmed with awe that the the holiness and the glory of God reminded him of his own sin. He said, "I am undone he goes i, I i'm It's over for me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst people of unclean lips. And it was at that moment that one of the seraphim flew to him and purified his mouth with forgiveness and grace. And so you have this incredible, incredible picture of worship. Yes, the definition that we used last week is true, but this is an expanded definition. Here's another, another opportunity for worship. You wanna know another way to look at worship? Another way to think about worship is man's modesty before God's majesty. Our modesty before the majesty of God. What'd you say? This is overwhelming to consider who he is. To think about that. To experience that. And and Isaiah experienced the same thing that you and I would experience if we were in his sandals, that it requires the grace of God to even endure the glory of God. You see, I think in our day and age, we have worked so hard to personalize God. And to be sure, God is personal. To be sure... Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's a big deal. But we can never allow our passion to personalize God. Allow us to minimize his majesty. We have to hold on to that sense of awe and wonder, both personal and accessible and awe-inspiring and majestic, both at the same time. You see, if we lose our sense of majesty and awe, then then we reduce God. If, If we if we lose our sense of awe and majesty, we make gods of our idols and an idol of our God. Because we have to remember that we are created in the image of God. We do not create God in our image. It's not up to me, it's not up to you to decide who God is and what God can do or shouldn't do. And anytime that we say, well, I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank, we're creating God in our image. We have to remember the majesty of God and the goodness of God at all times. He is always God and he is always good. So if God does it, it's good. If God does it, it's right. If he says it, it is by definition true and good and right. And that includes his judgment. That includes him saying this is right and this is wrong. He's God. It's his call. But I want you to think about the peace that is available in that reality. I I think that's why God starts the Ten Commandments out the way that he does. If you've got your Bibles, look in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is God explaining to Israel how to live in relationship with him, how to live in covenant relationship with him. Verse 3, Exodus chapter 20 says, You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. That's not exactly the feel-good hit of the summer, is it? I'm like, whoa, can't we go back to this part about grace and forgiveness? You see, God expects devotion. He expects it because he is worthy of it. That's what worship means, worthy ship, worth ship. And so he expects us to be solely devoted to him. Now, somebody is thinking right now, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's a jealous God. What about 1 Corinthians 13? I've been to weddings. I remember it says, love is not jealous. Remember that, preacher? Remember, everything God does is good. His jealousy of our devotion and affection and worship is also an expression of his love. I'll give you an example. Julie, my bride. 27 plus years of wedded bliss in our marriage there are some non-negotiables that that actually strengthen the relationship the, the connection that we have we've been married for 27 years julie made it very very clear when we got married that after our wedding day she would prefer that i not date other women that, that was just kind of one of the things that we said, this is a non-negotiable. Just, just, we're going to say, we're only going to date each other. And for the record, I asserted the same expectation on her. And for 27 years, she has never dated another guy. Why would she want to? But it's in that exclusivity that we share as husband and wife, that's where the magic happens. That, that's, that's where the relationship grows and develops. I got to tell you, I never, ever would have guessed that year 27 could be better than year one. I would have been like, I'm sure it'll be fine, but 27, I'll be what, 52 it's almost dead. I mean, so how, how good can it be? Awesome. Awesome. Because it's about the relationship. And it's in that relationship and that exclusivity. Julie occupies a place in my life humanly that no other person can touch. Nobody else gets that role. It's hers and hers alone. And she's okay with that. God deserves to occupy a place in your life, in my life, that no one else can touch. That's why he says what he says about idols. Because idols distract us from the greatest love of our lives. It's the idols that that we build. And I know when you read Exodus chapter 20, you think, well, that's so primitive. They would, they would carve out things out of stone and, and wood and, and bow down and worship stuff. You and I do the same thing. We've got idols, don't we? We've got idols like possessions. You, you know people. You've read books, you've seen movies about people who who decide that a certain number of zeros, a certain zip code or address, that's going to bring them satisfaction and fulfillment. That's an idol. We talked about that last week. Possession. There's power and prestige. Power. Mm. How many people, how many people do we see? who are all about the accumulation of power and prestige in other people's eyes, thinking that that's gonna satisfy their soul. And when you see it, it's pretty obvious. You know, you really trust your eyes. Maya Angelou said, you know, if somebody shows you who they are, trust them. When you see that, it's not, a, it's not appropriate to be disgusted. You, you can go quickly through disgusted, but it, it's more appropriate to be sad for them, to realize that they are, they're chasing something that will never work, prestige or power. Now, let me say this. Possessions and power, a lot of times, they do work in the short term. Don't, don't misunderstand me. There are a lot of people who make a lot of money in a short period of time. I love what one comedian said, like, people go, well, you know, what goes around comes around. No, it don't. Sometimes it just keeps going around. In this life, it will never satisfy possessions, power, prestige, people, people. If I could just meet the right girl, God, if you would just bring me that woman, with the faith of Mother Teresa and the face of Giselle. That's all I ask, Lord, for total satisfaction and fulfillment. Or people who think, man, if if we could just have kids, that would simplify everything. (laughs) Father, we pray for these people right now. It's unfair to another person to put on them the weight that only God can support. You're setting yourself up for major disappointment and them for incredible frustration for not being able to live up to your expectations. People can be an idol. Pleasure. Pleasure can be an idol. I don't know if you've heard, but Our culture is fairly obsessed with sex. Now, sex is a gift from God, created by God, envisioned, dreamed up by God. But it was never intended to be the satisfaction of your soul. It's not. I mean it can be fun, but it's never going to satisfy your soul over time. And and, and all of these different idols can can really be bottom lined in pride. Just pride. A, a, lot of, a lot of times we keep God at arm's length because of pride. I've talked to so many people who have thrown up so many smoke screens. Oh, what about evolution? What about the dinosaurs? The dinosaurs aren't even mentioned in the Bible. How can you believe the Bible? It doesn't go back that far. And and, and I'm happy. I think as believers we ought to be educated and, and able to have these kind of conversations intelligently with graciousness, gentleness, and respect, as Peter says. But a lot of times, a lot of times, those arguments are smokescreens because when it's all said and done, a lot of times, we just don't want to bow the knee and express our modesty before God's majesty. It's pride. Pride in myself can be an idol, just like possessions, just just like power, prestige, just like pleasure, just like any of those things. Pride in yourself, You, you make yourself an idol. And God knows that he didn't create you to be God. He didn't create me to be God or to play God. And so when we bring our worship, when we remember the majesty of God while enjoying the accessibility of God, then we begin to experience him in the fullest sense possible. It it was this fullest manifestation that Jesus is, that that he gives us. This is what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the reality, ladies and gentlemen. At some point, the majesty of God will be real to you. At some point, you will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's, it's, not, it's not something that you can argue your way out of. There will come a time when the time for deciding is done and the deciding will be done for you. The question is, will you bow the knee? Will you confess that he is Lord before that time? Will you live as though he is Lord and bring it with everything that you've got, acknowledging your modesty before his majesty? I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. For for just a brief moment. If you're here today and you've never bowed the knee, you've never acknowledged that he is God and you are not by confessing your sin, And receiving his grace, stepping into that relationship, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. In just a moment, it doesn't require that you pass a test with a certain score. It doesn't require that you have a certain attendance record at church over the next six months. It requires a willing heart and a surrender to who God is. experience his accessibility, his God-with-us-ness, while also acknowledging his majesty. If you'd like to begin that relationship, then we want to invite you to pray just right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God. Silently. Silently. Say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. You are God and I am not. And in this moment, I worship you. I admit, I confess you are Lord. Lord of this world, but also Lord of my life. I confess my sin, I claim your forgiveness. I accept the gift of grace. And I will follow you from this moment forward. I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your head bowed for a moment. But if that was your prayer, this is the biggest moment of your life. And so as a church, we want to help with what comes next. So if that was your prayer, I want to ask you to do just a couple of things. Number one, you fill out the connect card that's in your program just right now just quietly right where you're sitting just start filling that out you'll notice about a third of the way down is a place to indicate there i committed my life to christ this week that's what just happened and when our service ends and we dismiss in a couple of minutes I wanna ask you to tear that off at the perforation along the fold there, and before you leave, just hand it to one of our ushers, one of our hosts, or maybe somebody underneath the hub out front under the big front porch. And that will begin a, a conversation, a dialogue that'll proceed at whatever pace works for you. Because this is just the beginning. And the second thing, as our heads are bowed for just another second or two, would you just quietly raise your hand? If you just committed your life to Christ and stepped into that relationship, would you just lift your hand and hold it up high over your head for a second? As a physical statement of the spiritual commitment of your response to the amazing grace initiative of God. So, as a church, we celebrate that. We honor that. You can put your hands down. But we're going to put our hands together just to tell you: welcome home. Welcome home.